Yahweh loves worship. Scripture is full of commands to worship him. There are probably hundreds of illustrations in Scripture of people and angels, followers and enemies bowing down before him. We get glimpses of heavenly worship in times ancient. We have apocalyptic scenes of future worship. And we are given insight that at this moment, angels surround his throne with worship and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We see in scripture the tabernacle that Yahweh ordained to be built. And today you can walk the ruins of the temple that he prescribed. In Revelation 21, we see a heavenly city that will descend and that will be a sort of temple where he abides with his people forever. There's so much grandeur in what we see in those buildings and those structures. And then we come to Paul, the apostle, and he teaches that we as a community and that we as individuals, our bodies are a temple to the living God. And that the sacrifice of our lives and what we do with our bodies is a reasonable spiritual service. For the last three weeks, we have considered and spoken about worship. We got to see Kip bow down on stage. Uh, Bruce talked about worshiping at home, and he brought the mother of all illustrations to to the stage Uh, I brought donuts. Last week we talked about corporate worship when we gather together and worship here together in community. This morning we are going to think about the audacious statement, work as worship. I'm really glad to be with you this morning. It's exciting every time I get a chance to be up here and speak. So let's, uh, let's start thinking together. <clears throat> How do you think of God? When I say Yahweh or I say the Lord, what do you think of? And my guess is that you think of maybe love. All right, we just finished First John. He makes a big deal about God is love. Maybe you think about grace, grace or graciousness. Maybe you think about compassion Or you think of God and you think of power and rumbling of earth at his presence and lightning and fire. Maybe you think of the immense knowledge that he has. Turn with me to Genesis 1. If you don't know where Genesis 1 is, it's at the very front of your Bible. I don't know what page number it is in the Pew Bible, but it's probably something around 1. And a lot of you probably don't need your Bibles for this uh, portion, but we're going to be looking at a couple verses later here in Genesis 1. So, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to notice that when Scripture introduces you to Yahweh, It introduces him as a worker. 
The rest of the chapter, Genesis 1, a good bit of Genesis 2, is all about God working. What's he do? He works for a day, and when he's done, he looks at it and he says, I do some good stuff. And then the next day, he works again, and the third, up, up through the sixth day, uh, when he completes his work, and then he rests. God is a master worker. Psalm 19.1 is... Um, fills in for lots of verses that say something like this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Turn with me to Proverbs 8. Proverbs 1 through 9 is a unit. It's a literary unit. It's not disjointed uh, like a lot of Proverbs seems to be. But 1 through 9 is a unit, and I want to look specifically at chapter 8. Verse 22, wisdom is talking, and here in Proverbs, wisdom is portrayed, personified as a woman, and she is powerful, and she is smart, and she is strong, and here's what she says, Yahweh brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began, when there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the earth or its fields or any dust of the world, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so that its waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of earth, then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing in his presence, rejoicing in the whole world and delighting in mankind. Let this sink in for you, because for some of it, it's a new thought. God as the master worker. When we think about work in a Christian context, we often rush immediately to talking about work as a mission field where you can do ministry and evangelism. But as Bruce says, we need to back the bus up. And if you've ever seen a tour bus try to back up, that can be a challenging thing. But that's what we're going to do this morning is back it up. We'll get there. But I want to think about work on its own. A couple weeks ago, Kip defined worship this way. Worship is a relational response to the reality of who God is. And um, that is a, a take on uh, worship as defined in our worship document. If you haven't read it, you ought to. It's, it's good. Uh, Bruce, the next week, uh, nuanced it. Worship is a relational response to the truth of who God is. And then uh, last week, uh, Wally Brath went theological, added lots of lines. um, And he said, the people of God from all nations responding with all of their lives to all that God has revealed himself to be through his word and the living word, Jesus Christ. Um, Really great definitions and ways of thinking about worship Oscar Wilde said this, and he was imitating 
an 1800 English clergyman when he said this, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. I would suggest that when we intentionally imitate God because of who he is, that is an essential form of worship. Some of you are thinking that's not very spiritual sounding. There's not a lot of Christianese in there. Not sure I like it. Um, look back at Genesis 1 with me, and I'll build my argument. Look at, uh, turn to verse 26. God is creating, and here we are on day six, and God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Friends, we were designed, created to rule. You were designed and created to rule. When God made this world that belongs to him, he said, I'm going to get some managers. I'm going to get some stewards. And he made us. That is a lofty position to hold. But it doesn't finish there. Verse 27, And so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God is a creator and an organizer. And do you see that one of the prime directives that he has given us is to create and organize? It's right here at the very beginning of the story. We were made to work. And when we work intentionally imitating God because of who he is and who we are, that, I would assert, is worship. Because we are reflecting him. The church has not always done well at teaching, and I don't mean this church, I just mean the evangelical church, uh, since its inception, has not done a good job of uh, connecting work and worship. And there's a book I'll put um, on my Facebook page and then probably on the website I'll, I'll put some resources for you. Um, but a lot of my thinking has been provoked by this guy, Tom Nelson, in Work Matters. Um, and here's what he says. Many followers of Jesus live their entire lives in the workplace under the soul-suffocating distortion that their work is not as important and God-honoring as the work of a pastor or missionary. Have you ever felt that? Like your job isn't as important, isn't as meaningful as. And the Catholic Church addressed that in one way. It created monasteries and convents. Evangelicals said, hey, let's just split those and then we'll keep them far apart from each other. He calls it the work dualism. He goes on. 
the monastic impulse calling followers of Jesus to withdraw from the normal day-to-day world in order to pursue a highly spiritual and highly mystical contemplative life in sacred spaces shows this distortion of work. I don't know about you, but there are times when I want to go out into the wilderness and set up a column and sit on top of it and just sit. Read my Bible, think about God, look at the world he's created, and get away. And that feels uniquely spiritual. He goes on. In reality, there is no more sacred space than the workplace where God has called you to serve him as you serve the common good. This is what Genesis was saying. Genesis was saying, you are designed to rule the world that God has created. And the way you do that is whatever work God has given you. That may be the 9 to 5 or 7.30 or 7 to 6 job that you go to, whatever your hours are. It may be the lawn work that you have. It may be the housework that you have. It may be the laundry. It may be the prep uh, for food and the, and the care that has to happen in the home in order for people to live. It, if you're um, a student, it's the work that you're doing at school to learn the way you're supposed to learn so that you can be a product, productive member of our culture. I think Tom is correct that the place where God, and, and understand, God has called you. Sometimes when people think of the calling, they think, oh, pastors get callings. I got a calling years ago, seminary, I got it. I can tell you about it sometime. But I had already had a calling that I wasn't aware of. And it was right here in Genesis, I should have been aware of it. It's right there in Genesis 1. God has called every single one of us to work for the common good in the creativeness and organizational care of our planet. And your work fits into that wherever it is. Are you familiar with uh, Dorothy Sayers? Some of you read Lord Peter Whimsey novels. Um, So she was a thinker and uh, author Uh, late 1800s to the mid-1900s, and she also wrote and thought about spiritual things, and she was a friend of C.S. Lewis and uh, Tolkien, and here's what she said. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. You can put in whatever job normal person job you have into that. Um, Now, she wasn't a member at WL. I've never heard that here, uh, thankfully. But she goes on, what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. I think she's right. I think that Christians should be known for doing excellent work. Do not wear an I Love Jesus t-shirt or a cross lapel to work if you're not going to do excellent work while you're there. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way, and he can talk a little better than I can. Even if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper. Go on out and sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. 
sweet streets like Handel and Beethoven composed music. Sweet streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweet streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. I just couldn't pull it off like that, but isn't that... That's what I'm talking about. I hope that you're getting my point. Um, I hope that I've been clear. Whatever your work is, whether it is a corner office at Sylvius or Zimmer Biomet, or whether you're the person who is checking in cars or pre-spraying cars at Clearwater Car Wash or serving meals at Culver's, whether you're doing remodels or building, whatever your work is, do it with excellence. Intentionally imitating our worker God and it will be worship. That means you can spend your whole day in worship. How do we do that? You can read a lot. Um, Oz Guinness talked about the concept of an audience of one. Um, my mom, when I was a little boy, when I'd go off to school, walk down our front yard to the school bus, she would say practically every time, remember who you belong to, as I would wander down there. And I was like, what? I was a dense child. Um, Paul said it this way, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Now, he's writing to slaves. He's writing to people who have no say over what work they do. Do you understand that it is a brand new concept in human history that you can say, I wonder what I will do for my living. For most of human history, you have simply done either whatever the king commanded or whatever your dad did or whatever your mom did, that was your work. This is a new concept. And here are people who have no say, who you can imagine Paul saying, hey, throw that off. You're a disciple of Jesus now. But here's what he says, work as though you're working for the Lord not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. I'd like you to imagine when you're at work, wherever it is, whether you own your own company or if you're a manager or if, um, whatever position you have, understand the truth that God is your boss. Ultimately, he is the one who oversees your work. And just imagine that he's walking around with donuts, checking up on his employees. And not in a, like, sneaky way, but just as a, hey, I love you. How's your work going? Is there something here I can help you with? Have a donut. I envision God that way, and I think that's how we have to think. And next time you're at the office or at school or wherever and someone brings donuts, let that be a, a marker in your mind. Oh, right. I'm working for an audience of one. My boss may not, may not appreciate me. My coworkers may not appreciate me. I may not feel like doing a good job for them, but I'm going to do a good job for my boss, for God, and do it uh, like Paul talks about here. I'm curious at how many of you love every aspect of your job. All right, one person, two. Oh, holy cow, a lot of people. This is crazy. I didn't expect any hands up. All right. Um, you four need to get together and write a book. 
In my pastoral experience, and I was a pastor for 15 years, now uh, own a business with um, a friend who goes here. Um, in my pastoral experience, though, I think the greatest or most prolific point of dissatisfaction and frustration that I saw was that which people had with their work. And I don't mean the most profound. Spouse friction, children, and pain there were the most profound, but the most common, the one that was most universal, was some kind of dissatisfaction with our work. I feel like I'm always the one who gives you bad news. I feel like I'm always standing up here giving you bad news. Um, our culture preaches that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. That, my friends, is baloney. Because work is broken. I don't just mean relationships are broken and so that impacts work. I mean that work as a fundamental thing, as the thing that God gave us to do, that broke. It broke when we sinned, and God marked it with the curse so that we would see it. And yet, we get lured in, and there are websites who are offering to find you the perfect job. And we are tempted to believe that our work life is the one place that is exempt from brokenness. And it's not true. Our work needs to be redeemed. And there will be a time, and we'll see it in a little bit, there will be a time when the curse is removed and when work is fixed. But until then, things never stay fixed. Have you noticed that? Um, recently finished the house, and the last two weeks of a house are terrible. It's just the way it is. Uh, but this last house, I had planned out everything. Everything was scheduled. Everything was perfect. We were going to get done a full week before our deadline. We were going to leisurely clean the house and walk out of there. Guess what? Vendors let me down. Product came in broken. Carpet. They rolled out the carpet in the basement, and there was this huge, bad, defective spot in the middle of it. And so there we were, right up to the last day. Movers were coming the next day. I was out there doing final things, fixing things. That's the way work is. No one was trying to get me. You can plan and schedule your project, your launch, whatever it is, to perfection. But people, machines, systems, and technology are going to let you down because work is broken. There's some good news. Work is not as broken as it could possibly be. And if we will think biblically about our work, it can be redeemed. But that means we can't buy what our culture is selling us. Let me suggest a few thoughts. Um, and you, can, you don't need to turn there, but you can, uh, and these will be in my notes on, online. 1 Timothy 5.8 um, Paul says that we are supposed to take care of our own family. The reward of work, part of the reward of work, is nourishing your family. And there is something beautiful and gratifying about that. When you think of your work as being nourishing. 
In Ephesians 4, Paul says that you should stop stealing. So if you're stealing, stop that. And then he says, work with your hands so that you will have something to share with others. Is our culture teaching that? No, what we and what I buy into is that if I can make more money, if the next project goes better, I can improve my lifestyle. I don't know if any of you are like me in that way. If I can get a better job or make more money or get an advancement, I can upgrade the technology in my house. I'm still playing with a uh, Xbox 360. Can you believe that? How old is that game system? We should be upgrading and advancing. Uh, no, Paul says, think about your work differently. You have the opportunity to share with others. And can I tell you that one of, I was a pastor for 15 years, and this doesn't make you feel sorry for me, but I just made nothing. We just... You can ask, I can tell you the story. We made nothing. We were always the recipients of other people's uh, financial generosity. That's just, that's just the way we lived. One of the greatest things, that I, there are times when I wish I was still in full-time uh, ministry in that way, in a paid uh, vocational ministry, but one of the most wonderful things about the work that I've had over the last five years is that, one, I can take care of my own family, Two, we get to help people. And that is amazing. And it wasn't until I was, what, 35, 40 years old that I got to that position in life. And it's wonderful to be able to help other people. If we could change the way we think about our work and say, my next advancement is not so I can upgrade, but so it's so I can help more, how would that change the way we think about our jobs? In your work, you are participating in the organizing of the earth. You get to engage in what's called common grace, the grace that God pours out on all of his children, whether they are followers of him or not. Your, your work, whether it's at home or at school um, or at a, a typical job site, that's your calling to participate in common grace. And work can be a great source of satisfaction. It's awesome when you finish a project and you look at it and the client says, thank you, this is wonderful. You're finally done with my house. Um, for about five minutes, you're like, ah, oh, this is great. And then something else breaks. But there is satisfaction to be had in our work. And finally, if we can't possibly think about redeeming our work if we don't think about the fact that, yeah, our work is a paid mission field. You don't have to raise support. Uh, I've had to raise support in the past. I was a home missionary pastor, so I raised support. Um, hated it. Didn't do it. That's part of why we didn't have much money. Um, but when you work a job, you, your support's taken care of. You're not having to ask people. Uh, your clients are funding your worship. You get to bless them and engage them and love them and be selfless with them. You get to work really hard, do excellent work, and represent God in that environment. Um, I think that's amazing. 
Um, you get to tithe then. It's, it's awesome. Um, again, just we're in a totally different situation. There was a time when I was tithe, I felt like I was tithing to me. Our church didn't have money, so anything I put in was paid back to me, and it felt ridiculous. Um, I love now being able to tithe. Uh, we used to write a check. That was really fun. Now it's online, you know, so you're like, boom, submit, uh, and then you get the thank you email, uh, which is always fun. Um, in your workplace, you have a broader reach than most pastors. You may not stand up and talk to a bunch of people, but you know what? Most of you people here, you've heard all this. Like, we're not evangelizing most of you here. We're teaching and encouraging, supporting, motivating, but most pastors aren't doing evangelistic work in their day-to-day -day job. That's what you get to do out there in the workplace or in your home or at the school. You have a reach that no paid minister will probably ever have. You are connected to people who are not going to say, hey, I ought to go to church and learn about Jesus. Again, no t-shirts or lapel pins until after you're doing exceptionally good work, working hard and representing God there. So what is the end of work? Oh, doesn't that sound nice? You know, you get to heaven and you just get to lay there. <laughs> Our culture has sold us on the notion that work is a necessary evil to be used and then outsmarted. I think that they have confused, when they think about retirement, they have confused work with labor. Yeah, there's coming a time when you may not be able to physically do the job that you're doing, but that doesn't mean that you cease working. Scripture does not envision retirement as a time when you get to uh, sit on a beach and drink uh, non-alcoholic Mai Tais. It is not about radical leisure and self-indulgence. It is right and appropriate to save for retirement because there may come a time when you can't anymore uh, take care of yourself. And it's appropriate to plan to take care of yourself so that others don't have to. But Scripture does not have anything to say positive about the self-indulgence and self-gratification that our culture pursues when it thinks about retirement. In fact, look at Revelation 22. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. I used to think that reigning with Jesus forever and ever was going to mean I get to sit in my lazy boy and someone brings me bonbons and palm fronds. I don't know who those saps were going to be in heaven, but someone was going to do it because I pictured kingship and ruling as leisure. Have you ever met a king who does his job well? Have you ever met an administrator who runs a building or a business well? They are working. Friends, I have good news and bad news. It's the same thing. We're going to work forever. But the good news is we're going to work forever in an unbroken place. 
Work will be fixed. The curse will be lifted. There will be perfect balance. Our work will be satisfying, grace-filled creation and organization forever. In that way, we will be worshiping God forever. Not with harps, but with ruling. So what if I hate my job? Because I know a lot of you do. Tonight's going to come and you're going to say, oh, I have to go back to work tomorrow. Step one, starting tomorrow or whenever you go back to work, work hard as if God was your boss and at any moment he might walk by with donuts. Step two, figure out what is dissatisfactory to you. People will be in jobs hating their jobs and have no clue why they hate their job. Is it lack of respect? Lack of advancement, maybe you're not getting the credit you deserve, you don't think you're getting the pay that you deserve, it feels like a hostile work environment, or my work just isn't all that satisfying, doesn't feel all that important. Guess what? Step one, working hard with the reality that God is your boss may resolve your dissatisfaction. <laughs> there may be a reason you're not getting the kudos at work that you think you deserve. You might not be doing the work necessary in order to get the kudos that you deserve. But if you do that and there are still problems, you need to address it. Figure out, how do I address this issue? Have hard conversations with whoever you need to have hard conversations. And having done that, if it's resolved, great. If it's not, you have two choices. You can accept it and not complain, you have no business being a whiner at work. We may not do that, or at school. Then you can consider leaving. But remember this, like Luke Skywalker, when he goes into the cave, there with Yoda, he takes his problems in with him. And frequently, when we move from one job to another, thinking that the next one's going to be better, guess where the problems came from? I brought them with me. So what now? I have three steps for you. And in four weeks, I get to speak again on Jonah. I know Jonah doesn't have a whole lot to do with work as worship, but I'm going to ask you again if you've been doing these things. And I'm going to commit to doing them because I don't do step two. Step one, remember who you belong to. When you go to work, whatever your work is tomorrow, remember that you've been bought with a price. Therefore, you are not your own. You're supposed to serve God with your body. Work hard at your work. Remember who you belong to. Number two, begin your day with submission. Kip talked about this three weeks ago. He talked about the prayer that he prays. He talked about... Um, Tom, say, Tom Julian saying that we've got to take daily, we have to take ourselves off of the throne. First thing in the morning, take yourself off of the throne, place yourself on the altar, understand that your body is a living sacrifice for worship to God. 
And then you have to do that throughout the day as necessary, because you'll forget. I find myself on the throne all too often. And then third, organize your work to be worshipped. I don't know what that means for you. For, my dad was a truck driver from the time I was as early as I can remember, and he retired as a truck driver pulling mobile homes. And I remember going with him when I was a little boy, riding along in the semi or riding along in my mom's car in the uh, escort vehicle. My dad, that truck driving is a alienating, isolating work. And I learned later that there were certain truck stops that we never stopped at, even though we were hungry and, hey, well, there goes the truck stop, Dad. I learned that there were the prostitution rings and pornography, banks of pornography at certain truck stops, and my dad knew what they were and would refuse to go there. That's how my dad protected his relationship with his wife, how he protected his relationship with his God, and how he protected his children when we traveled with him. Um, I don't know what it means for your work, but figure out ways to make your work honoring to God. You're probably going to need a prayer partner, not a complaint partner. I want to finish with this what if. What if the people of WLGBC were known around the community as people who worked hard with excellence at everything they set their hand to? What if we were known as people who loved our enemies, those who were competing with us, who were trying to make us look bad in our jobs so that they can succeed? What if we loved our enemies and our best clients in the same selfless way? Let me pray for you and for me. Father, we need your help. We go out and we work in a place that doesn't care about you, that resists you, most of us do. And even the Christian institutions that I've worked in, Father, there was backbiting and infighting. I pray that you would protect us, help us to see that our work is worship if we're imitating you on purpose. Pray that we would work hard and that we would honor you and that that worship would be acceptable in your sight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.